Hello and welcome to the Empathy for Breakfast show. I am Mimi Nicklin and I am your host of a show that travels the world, talking to people from all corners of our planet about empathy, about our ability to connect and to understand each other and how that is changing our world. These conversations won't only unpack the amazing power of empathy in our societies and our businesses, but they will remind us that we are all far more alike than we are different. I believe that there has never been a better time to talk about empathy, to talk about our need to reconnect as people, as human beings. The more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. So let's get talking. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today's episode was actually recorded in 2020 with Cal Bruns as two people who truly believe in the power of empathy in our world and particularly in our marketing, our communication and our innovation. This conversation was one of those conversations that you never really forget. And I'm so pleased you're here to tune in. I'm so excited you joined us today for this conversation with Cal Bruns, who is the founder of Maxboxology, which is a fantastic design business down in South Africa, where many of you know my heart and soul live on. Cal and I connected over LinkedIn, over content, lo and behold, about empathy and found quite a lot of connection points in that area. And I think we're going to have a really fascinating conversation. So Cal, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I look forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. Me too. I think we're going to have so much to discuss. Not only do we share an interest in empathy and, and humility and humanity, but we share an industry as well, because I come from 15 plus years in the advertising industry. And I think you have even more than me, Cal. So you come from a long time <laughs> as a creative you're, director. You're aging me and you can count the rings. Yes, indeed. No. I have another five years on you, at least uh, in the advertising <laughs> industry before I started Matchboxology. Tell me, in all those um, wonderful years, you spent a lot of time as a creative director in Leo Burnett. Is that right? Exactly. Around the world. So I guess six offices on a lot of different continents. Fantastic. And what made you, and so many others, but what made you leave the world of sort of big corporate advertising and start up your own design agency? Well, I think it was a couple of things. Um, part of it was, I think, time and place. When I The last move I made at Leo Burnett took me to South Africa. And uh, before that, I'd been in Prague right after the wall had fall, fallen down and, and you know, we hit the post-communist world. And what I saw were societies in flux. And, and so much of what we learn in advertising, what we apply, I, I think is, is helping, you know, people in theory do better things. So behavior change. And I felt like there were so many opportunities, certainly I saw in Prague, but definitely what I saw in South Africa, where we could use all this talent that we had, but maybe apply it to a greater social good. So it was just more and more difficult for me to wake up every morning and, and stress about, you know, how many new products I was selling versus, you know, some of the other needs I saw around. So eventually I just thought, you know, what the heck, let's see if this works, if we can take the private sector learnings and apply it to to kind of more the citizen needs. I, I mean, I totally agree. I, I think probably anyone in advertising listening to this would, would like to do the same. I think we all wake up with that dream, right, which is using our ability to tell stories and understand people for the greater good. And, you know, even in, in times of pandemic and crisis, there is such a huge role for creativity. So tell me, I mean, Matchbox, 
doxology, you've you've been in this a uh, number of years now. How have you balanced that? Tell me a little bit about how the agency works and how this idea of understanding people, empathy, how has that become core to what you guys do? So to explain that, I'm going to go back and, and tell you how Matchboxology was born. After I, I decided I was going to leave advertising, one of my existing clients, Levi Strauss, the manage, managing director at the time and I were friends. And uh, we went to dinner one night and he asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, to me, what I see is this world has evolved and that on the citizen side, people treat people as if they need to be told what to do. But on the consumer side, you know, we're all about trying to find out what consumers want and deliver against that want. And it just strikes me that, you know, we're talking to the same person here. So why can't we, you know, apply a deeper level of empathy to help people have better lives, not just buy better products? And he said, that's a really interesting insight. Why don't you do that for Levi Strauss in South Africa? So it it was an accidental start of a company. But it was a great kind of, uh, I guess, learning experience because A, it's a fantastic brand. B, it was a fantastic opportunity to explore a company's relationship with its consumers on a level beyond, hey, aren't these just really cool blue jeans? Because in South Africa at that time, HIV was a huge problem. And, um, you know, hey, jeans make you look sexy. Therefore, you know, kind of might put you at risk. And so we started to have conversations well outside of the fashion kind of sense with consumers and it worked. You know, the brand accelerated sales. People really enjoyed the bravery of the brand. And you know what? We were able to communicate some very important things and give people some new perspectives on on an important topic in their lives because there was a brand involved. So that was the beginning of Matchboxology. And I think what it taught me was exactly as you say, empathy matters. Just listening to people and uh, allowing them to tell you what they think. I mean, obviously, I agree with you. Uh, you know, that's my my total passion in life is how we listen to each other better and how we encourage others to listen to each other better. Why do you think so many big agencies don't do that well? And do you think it's something that we used to do better? Because that's a question I get asked all the time, you know, is this something that the advertising industry has lost? Or did we never have it? Did we never know how to really empathize with people uh, on a deeper level? Okay, I'm going to tell you just my opinion. I have no empirical evidence for this. But my gut feel, because I've been in the industry for a very long time, what what I've seen is that the people in the industry have changed. So in the beginning, advertising was almost like a blue collar type business of sorts, where at least in the creative side, you'd find very ordinary people who had exceptional talent in in art or, or copywriting who had a finger on the pulse of the ordinary person because that's who they were and that's where they came from. So they were able to connect really deeply because it was like talking to their friends. Over time, lots of MBAs, lots of very smart people got hired who I think had less in touch and were trying to find ways to connect with people that shorthanded their ability to make those bonds. They weren't they didn't have the humility of ordinary people. And I guess that brings me to something I, I did want to say as part of our you know, concept. I think lying behind empathy are three things. You know, I think there's objectivity, I think there's curiosity, and I think there's humility. And I got to say, in, in, the, in the last 20 years, and maybe even a little bit longer than that, I've seen the advertising industry really fall short on the humility category. 
And, mm-hmm. and I think that's super important in, in empathy. You know, mm-hmm. you have to not know more than the next guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually was talking about that with some people earlier this morning, um, a very similar point around humility and just the need to be comfortable with that in the workplace, with that in, in, in our industry, because I think you're right. I think there is a shortage. And one of the reasons we have so many hard edges to everything we're doing is that sort of disconnect between humility, between humanity, between really understanding that we're all we're all just humans, you know, sharing in this in this journey. I love obviously again because of my passion for the continent you're in but I've loved reading and hearing about some of your stories in Africa and I can't help but think that you know empathy in Africa is is probably a game changer but not in the way that perhaps people think which is you know oh let's understand the plight of of a region but more in in actually understanding the microcosms of what's driving the change over there so obviously we're talking in the middle of covid times south africa particularly is still very much in the throes of uh, coming through that what do you think the the role of of empathy is at, at a state level at, at a community level at a society level um, in the environments that you're in ah. You asked such an interesting question. Um, the short answer is I don't think we know well enough. What I what I do see around us here in in certainly in South Africa, but across Africa, and what what's fascinating is I'm seeing it across all the other geographies as well. Is that a lack of empathy is really creating massive rifts in people? And I'll give you a good example here in South Africa. Um, you know the 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 sense of COVID is you know its risk and its its ability to to like infect you is mitigated by a couple of kind of grand, you know, pieces of advice from from the top down, from WHO and those people. You know, and one of those is social distancing. Exactly. So uh, the advice that, that everyone has gotten is, you know, wear a mask, but social distance. And when you live in some of the, you know, settings that people in Africa live in, you know, there is no social distancing. People live six, seven people to a, a small shack. You know, it, it's it's a matter of life or death for you to go out into the community to get what you need every single day. And communities are very, you know, dense pack with, with human beings. And it's also not very African to be an individual. Everyone, you know, there's this great expression in South Africa, Ubuntu, which is a person is only a person because of other people. People. And it so aptly describes the community vibe here. So mm. how do you tell people socially distance when that just goes against every single thing they stand for? So, you know, COVID's challenge is that it flies in the face of norms, but it flies in the face of, of, of also, you know, someone's basic being. And, and it's only through empathy that we're going to be able to deal with that. And, and come up with new solutions, ways that people can mitigate their risk, stay safe, but not like violate who they are. You know, I, I, again, you know, listening to you talk about it just brings back uh, so much of my sort of strategic work that I did when I was in SA. And I always remember one evening and I was at a, a gala dinner with a big South African business. And I was probably the only British person in the room. Uh, but I happened to also be the only uh, female, white Western female in a, in a group of my colleagues and friends and, and this client who were all uh, black men. 
black African men. And the conversation around the dinner table was, Mimi, what we, you need to help us understand something. How do you understand uh, the black market in South Africa more than we do? And yet we grew up in it. And, and it stuck with me for a very long time. And I think um, I didn't know then. I didn't know what empathy was then. But I think, uh, you know, to your point just now, one of the things I spent a lot of time doing in South Africa was listening, was trying to understand how these people live and, uh, you know, what those social norms and social cohesion means to them. And, and in my opinion, the only way you can do that is by listening, is by being curious and asking questions. I'm assuming we share that opinion, but tell me a little bit about that in your experience, that the need for listening and, and how do you listen to, to different groups of people that are so different to yourself? Look, I think, you know, A, you're far too humble. I think that you did know exactly what the value of empathy was, even though if you didn't know what the word was at the time, but you were already exhibiting it doing it. And and it was probably, you know, to the significant advantage of your clients at the time. But I think that the, the other two elements of, of my definition of empathy, you know, come into play here, which is that sense of curiosity and objectivity. So when you're a listener, a deep, I think, authentic listener, you stop judging people, you hear them for who they are. So that's difficult. Because sometimes our, our role is to listen to people that are not like us, that we don't actually agree with. And I'm sure in Africa, some of the things you heard about people's attitudes weren't, in fact, aligned to the way you felt about, you know, gender roles or things like that. But rather than judging people, you know, the goal of a conversation is to understand their, to be able to walk in their shoes for a little while. And that's where I think curiosity plays an important role as well. You know, some people are, they go through life trying to convince everyone of what they think. And, and then there's a group of us that just find everyone so interesting that it's like not really what we think. It's like, what do you think? It, it so is. And, you know, you tapped on just now something that's become, I think, a really big discussion point in the last just sort of two or three weeks because of some of the movements that's been going on around the world and, and some of the issues going on in the world, which is around judgment. Um, and you said just then, you know, this is about, um, you know, not judging, about not having those assumptions or presumptions, um, but just listening to hear, you know, what people have to say. And I know you've done a lot of work in the healthcare sector. How does that, where's the connection there between, you know, using listening and, and real curiosity to improve something as critical as, as public or community health? So I'll give you a story from one of the projects that we were working on in Kenya. And uh, the project was, was focused on trying to understand men who still, whatever, were 30 years on or more, from, from HIV being a problem in Africa. You know, these men are in their 20s, um, early 30s, and, they, and they're out there playing the field, if you know what I mean. So they're risky, yeah? And, you know, they're doing lots of risky things, but they don't test themselves for HIV because of everyone's ed, ed, impression is they don't do it because they don't care. When you go and you listen to men and you talk to them, what you discover is that there's a whole lot of things they're actually really afraid of. And, and men don't like to talk about fear. I mean, we're men and African men especially don't like to talk about fear. But if you're a good listener and you're patient and, and you can build their trust, they'll, they'll tell you, they'll drop little clues. So one example of something that we discovered that, that no one had really thought of, but it's so bloody obvious, is like one of the reasons men are afraid to get tested from HIV is because they're afraid that if they are HIV positive, they'll have to tell a woman. And no guy wants to confess something like that to a woman. You know, there are just such repercussions, not the least of which is that he suddenly feels very vulnerable. 
You know, it feels like she's in control now, not him. And, you know, he feels like he's failed. He feels like he's done something really wrong. And, you know, once you understand that, then you can begin to craft ways to to engage men, to to help soothe their, you know, egos and and you know, pave the way for new behaviors. So one of the one of the ideas that emerged coming out of that conversation came from a group of religious leaders that I was talking to. And they were talking about, yeah, 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 you know, we're all very tolerant, but you know, these sinners, they shouldn't have sex, you know, outside of marriage and all that. And and then I said, but don't you love all of your your constituents, you know, all the people in your flock? And they said, of course we do. And I said, well, do you ever tell them that? Do you tell them that you love them and you want them to live? And this lady goes, wait a minute, that's it. I'm going to do a sermon and I'm going to tell every one of those men, I love you, I want you to live. Like this idea emerged. And it sounds kind of from the advertising point of view, you'd go, wow, that's not really catchy. But it's so deep and fundamental. And when we like tested it out across men, and what we discovered is that the most powerful iteration of it is when your child tells you that. It's Mm -hmm. like that melts men. They will do anything. They will go and get HIV tested because their child looked up at them and said, you know, daddy, I love you. I want you to live. And and it's that kind of, I think, power of empathy that that really keeps me going every morning. It's it's like unbelievable. I mean, what a totally beautiful story. I, I just absolutely love that. I mean, you, and you're right. You just would never get to that level of depth of insight if you don't have those conversations. And I think so often in our industry today, there's resources, whether that's money, time or people that are so limited that we just we're missing out on so many of those human insights, those those absolutely sort of human Centered uh, thoughts that could be, you know, really changing things. Cal, we are nearly at the end of 20 minutes already, and I could just talk to you all literally all day. Um, but I wanted to end with, I, you know, the first time we connected was over an article you wrote. Um, and I can't remember the exact title, but it was something around uh, what we can learn from Oprah Winfrey and uh, how you <laughs> felt that she was um, a really empathetic uh, listener and host. And I thought that would just be a quite a fun, lighthearted way to end. Tell me a little bit of your thoughts around Oprah. Why, why do you think she's empathetic and how do you think she's using that to her game? An amazing interviewer. She prepares, but she listens and she plays what the answers that come, you know, forward. She doesn't sit with a list of, I'm going to ask you these 10 questions and ask you. And I think when I'm trying to to train my younger staff to be great listeners, I say, watch Oprah. She is a like maestro at this because people trust her because she's fun. She's nice, but she's a great listener. So for me, she is the doyan of, of empathy. Um, and we can all learn lessons from her. Brilliant. I mean, what better way to end a podcast than to than to tell all the young people listening to go and just watch Oprah videos as part of their <laughs> training to be better leaders. I mean, I think that's brilliant, guys. Go tell your bosses that Cal Bruns and me <laughs> have approved this new methodology of leadership training and it comes in the form of Oprah Winfrey. Cal, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been such a pleasure to connect with someone who believes in the power of empathy like I do and like so many other marketers out there do. I truly hope that between us and all the other voices out there, we can make a significant difference to how we create our work and how we understand all those people around us and the consumers that we set out to serve. So thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. And with that, another episode of the Empathy for Breakfast show comes to a close. I would like to thank IQ Films who produced this episode and DJ Ciel for my soundtrack and music. Do join me online to carry on the conversation. I'm incredibly active on Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter, at Mimi Nicklin. I would love to talk to you all more. Meanwhile, 
Spread the word, share the empathy. Because after all, the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. I'm Mimi Nicklin. Thank you very much for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you again on the Empathy for Breakfast show.